answer the question of who benefits or profits most directly from an action, event, or outcome. And you always have the starting point for your analysis or investigation. And sometimes it will also give you the end point. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had stated that. You remember him from Sherlock Holmes. This is Corruption of Child Protection Services. I am your host, David Shore. Human trafficking. The very words are sickening. It has been around ever since man found out he could make money off his fellow man and woman, and yes, even children. As far back as the Egyptians, when they enslaved the Israelites, man has found a way to profit from his fellow human beings. We think of slavery and human trafficking as only a black race subject. The truth, as you shall see, goes far beyond that. And it begins with the first white slave trader. You know who he is, but let's introduce him anyway. Now, before I go on, you're probably wondering, well, what does this have anything to do with the corruption of child protection services? Well, if you listen very carefully, you'll start seeing the basis of why I say child protection services is corrupt. Late Nancy Schaefer and her husband lost their lives. Bill Bowen, former federal investigator, lost his life. Both investigated child protection services. Each one found something that CPS did not want them to find. But let's go on. The person that I'm going to be referring to starts all the way back in 1492. A man by the name of Cristoforo Colombo. Now, if you don't recognize that name, maybe you know him as historical name, Christopher Columbus. He said in his journal, dated October 12, 1492, No sooner had we concluded the formalities of taking possession of the island than people began to come to the beach. They are friendly and well-dispositioned people who bear no arms except for small spears. They ought to make good and skilled servants. I think they can easily be made Christians, for they seem to have no religion. If it pleases our Lord, I will take six of them to your highnesses when I depart. And this is from Columbus's log dated October 12th, 1492. Now remember, I will repeat one part of it. I will take six of them to your highnesses when I depart. Remember that. Because later on, Columbus will contradict himself on that part. Now, this was from the 1992 article, 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance, from the Otokin newspaper. In that article, as I will show here, as well as other areas, the movement of human trafficking has changed labels. Do you know it still continues to this day? But it's under a different name, Child Protective Services. And even the product has changed names. 
children instead of families. Why do I say that? Well, as we will continue, you will hear the sickening things that the rich white man has done. And make no mistake, Columbus was rich. The king and queen of Spain gave him money in the form of jewels and other rare objects in order to finance his voyage. Now, according to historical documents, mostly in the United States, they said that Christopher Columbus was trying to find a new way to the West Indies and he just stumbled upon America. Well, Amerigo Despucci actually discovered America. He, Columbus discovered the West Indies. But make no mistake, what Columbus did was despicable. And as I go on, you will see what I mean. From that article, 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance, payment is still made. But under the name bonus from the Adoption and Safe Families Act of 1997, then-President Bill Clinton, who gave all the credit to his wife, Hillary Clinton, signed the bill into law. Bill Clinton even said it was his wife's idea for this. Before the rich white man arrived in the New World, and notice how it is said, in the New World, the indigenous people, Native, Ameri- Native Indians, lived peacefully among themselves. They were farmers, fishermen, and hunters. That was what they did for a living. That's what they did to support themselves. And they had bartering. There was no such thing as credit. There was no such thing as uh, you can just charge it. There were no borders, walls, or even state lines. No prisons, no homeless. Wow, no homeless, no prisons, no courts. Each tribe dealt with rule breakers in the tribe itself. Never was a perpetrator sent away unless it was under banishment. Then it had to be severe. You really had to screw up big time if you were going to be banished. The tribe and tribal council consisted of men who discussed each matter, and the decision was final. That meant no appeals. Their world went without challenge until the arrival of Christopher Columbus in 1492. That's when things changed. Not just for the indigenous people, but the world as a whole. Uh, guess what? Let's look at this entry in Christopher Columbus's journal. Should show this and future rich white men thoughts on everyone else. Quote, your highnesses must resolve to make them the Tain Ho To Kin Christians. 
I believe that if this effort commences in a short time, a multitude of peoples will be converted to our holy faith. And Spain will acquire great domains and riches and all of their villages. Beyond doubt, there is a very great amount of gold in this country. Also, there are precious stones and perils pearls, sorry, and an infinite quantity of spices. You know, let's read further in Christopher Columbus's log. Quote, those people are very unskilled in arms. Your Highnesses will see this for yourselves when I bring you the seven that I have taken. Remember when he originally said six? Must have decided seven was a good number. After they ha- they learn our language, I shall return them, unless your highnesses order that the entire population be taken to Castile or held captive here. With 50 men, you could subject everyone and make them do what you wished. Wow! So rich white men, government, coming in, and you have a scout, Christopher Columbus, who says, hey, guess what? We can go in, we can take over this country, they don't even know anything about warfare, we'll take 50 of our people and be able to enslave all of them. They won't know what hit them. You know, from the very beginning, those who were not rich white males were considered property to be bought and sold, that they were no more and no less a commodity to be used as the owner deemed. Wow. Well, you know, slavery was abolished, but there are still those in power, those who have money, that still believe that every person has his or her price. Sound familiar? If you watch wrestling, the wrestler Ted DiBiase, the Million Dollar Man, His motto was, every man has a price. That each person is for sale. You know, many business owners, including the president, believe that employees are no more and no less something that can be bought and sold at will. That the employee is either an asset or a liability or a debt. One that needs to be let go. You know, why else... Do companies lay off their best workers all in the name of profit? Look what's happening right now with COVID-19. I mean, there are states that are closing up. Businesses that are listening to their state government and closing. Even though they have a way in which to take care of, you know, the COVID-19. They can take their temperature that all companies are now doing. They're doing social distancing. They're having their employees wear masks. Why shut down an entire state? Well, you know, the indigenous property or slaves eventually were replaced with African property or slaves. And the result was the same. When I come back, I will continue with this. Now, if this has gotten you upset, well, just hold on to your hats, boys and girls, because you're about ready to get a ride you were not expecting. And 
if you're going, why well, didn't learn this in history class? Well, the rich white man made sure that this was swept under the rug. Let's keep it a secret. We'll be back. Welcome back. Well, let's go on this journey, continue, see if the rich white man learned anything. Well, the rich white man taxed first the indigenous, then the African slaves. Now, why would you say anyone would say that? This gave them more money and control over their property or commodity. You know, it is insulting to call indigenous Indians and black persons property and commodities. But this is what they were. You know, as I have said, some rich white men and not so rich white men still considered Indians and blacks in this manner. It's not right at all. But hey, what can I say? This is what's been going on. In the article... Child Protective Services Historical Overview, The Current System, by William Wesley Patton. The author speaks of the history of CPS, as well as the current system at the time of this article, which was last year, 2019. William Wesley Patton states, quote, No ancient civilization considered child protection to be a government, governmental function. In ancient Rome, for instance, fathers were vested with an almost unlimited natural right to determine the welfare of their children. The welfare of minors was a family matter, not a governmental interest or obligation. Let me repeat that for those of you that think the government should be in charge of our children. The welfare of minors was a family matter, not a governmental interest or obligation. Most other governments of the ancient world provided no limits to a father's right to inflict corporal punishment, including infanticide. Now, I'm going to say right now, I am not saying that parents should beat the living daylights out of their children. No. I am saying, you know, just discipline your children. Show them right from wrong. Show them that their actions have consequences. That what they say may hurt or help a person. So as my late parents would tell me, think before you speak. Think before you act. In other words, think about it before you do it. Sounds simple, right? Now, in English common law, the law was very clear. Now, it says, read and understand why we have not changed and how kidnapping and slavery still exist today. And it does. I mean, how many times have you heard about trafficking of children? Trafficking of people? So, let's take a look. In addition to the case-by-case determinations by the Chancery Court regarding children's property and guardianships. Now, remember, this is English common law. Parliament in 1601 
promulgated the Poor Law Act. Let me repeat that slowly. The Poor Law Act. Which, among other provisions, provided the government jurisdiction to separate children from pauper parents and to place poor children in apprenticeships until the age of majority. That would be 21 for males and 16 for females. Now, I want you to pay close attention to the year of this next section. In 1660, 1660, Parliament passed the Tenures Abolition Act, which presaged the end of feudalism, including guardianships in chivalry that had formed the basis for the earlier Court of Wards and Court of Chancery over the guardianship of both children's and the crown's inheritance and property interests. Now, if you're wondering what that means, in simple terms, guardianships in chivalry provided that when a tenant on a lord's land died, leaving an heir under the age of majority, the lord could control the minor's Minor heirs' inheritance until the child became an adult. That means that if you were under someone's authority, they determine what happens to the child's inheritance until that child became an adult. Once the child became an adult, if there was anything left over, it was then given to the child. The Ten Years Abolition Act was revolutionary because it vested in the father the right to appoint a guardian for his child heir, which was previously forbidden under the feudal inheritance law. So in other words, if you gave the instruction to whoever was in charge, hold on to this until my child becomes of age, they would be under the law required to hold that. Things began to change, however, for fathers in 1660. Let's see how much it changed. From 1660 until 1873, the Court of Chancery administered equity, jurisdiction, and conflicts between private parties over testamentary guardianships. It was during these equity determinations that the Court of Chancery expanded the substantive scope of child protection to include, in addition to inheritance and property, concerns over awards right to marry to a particular type of education or school, to the choice of religious training, and to child custody arrangements. In 1839, Parliament dramatically expanded the court's jurisdiction to determine, now listen to this part, the best interests of children through the Custody of Infants Act, which provided court jurisdiction to override a father's parental rights, including rights to custody and visitation. Most historians would agree that by the 19th century, governmental concern in the child's best interest, there is that word again, in the child's best interest, were perf- 
perfected directly through the doctrine of parens patria, rather than indirectly through legal contests over property and ride a father's parental rights, including the right to custody and visitation. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? I mean, a father should have a right to see his child, but the courts are making the father seem to be some deviant or someone that is the abuser. But how many times, and if any of you listening to this, has gone through the abuse through the mother? And I'm not saying that mothers are abusive. I'm not saying fathers are abusive. I'm just stating that if a person growing up went through that, well, I'm just going to say this. People go through things in their families. And as we continue in this discussion, in this episode and future episodes, we'll find out that maybe the person would be better off in their family and then other times be better off that the state step in. Now, most historians would agree that by the 19th century, governmental concern in the child's best interest, there's those words again, in the child's best interest, were perfected directly through the doctrine of her parents, patria, rather than indirectly through legal contests over property and guardianships. You know, it should be left up to the parents how they raised their kids. But as you're finding out, the government thought they knew better. Yeah, you see what's going on currently with in Washington. They're too busy arguing with one another to actually give a damn about people like you and I. Well, I can't tell you which way to vote. But just pay close attention to what your politicians are doing and just make the best decision. That's all I can say. Now, maybe when our founding fathers came to this country, things changed. <coughs> Sorry. Let's find out. Now, the American colonies, the child protection policies of the early American colonists closely mirrored those of 17th and 18th century Britain. The colonists emphasized two aspects of English child protection theory. Quote, the common law rules of family government and the traditions and child care practices of the Elizabethan Poor Laws of 1601. That book, the author's name is Thomas. It's on page 299. Although colonial remedies of placing pauper children into involuntary apprenticeships or into poor houses initially followed English legal customs, soon colonial theorists expanded court jurisdiction over juveniles to include contexts beyond poverty. For instance, in 18th century Virginia, courts separated children not just from poor parents, but also from parents who were not providing, quote unquote, good breeding, neglecting their formal. Now, let's take a look 
education, not teaching a trade or were idle, dissolute, unchristian, or uncapable. Rendleman wrote that on page 210 of this article. Now, Calvinist notions of poverty as idleness and sin permitted court expansion into the normative definitions of the best interests of children. So it appears that rich white men were in were dictating where your children were to be raised, not you. And just like Christopher Columbus and the indigenous people, and then later the African people. Am I wrong? Well, when we come back, we'll see what happened in the 1800s. I mean, after all, things had to get better. I mean, they're not as bad as they are now. Or did things get better over time? We will be right back. Welcome back. You know... Until the mid-1800s, child protection laws did not differentiate among different classes of children, so that dependent children status offenders and juvenile delinquents were either housed together in poorhouses with adults or involuntarily apprenticed. However, by 1830, an embryonic reform movement had begun which removed dependent children from their teeming poorhouses and placed them in large orphan asylums. Due to the refugee refugee movement, 1824 to 1857, private corporations such as the New York House of Refuge, that was founded in 1824, received public funds and care, cared for both neglected and delinquent children in large institutions that separated juveniles from adult criminals and paupers. Well, at least they did something right. At least they kept the kids away from adult criminals. However, by the mid-1850s, an anti-institution movement had developed with the goal of placing poor city children in country foster placements rather than in large city institutions. Well, that was real nice. At least get them away from the bad element. Even though numerous sta- statutes were promulgated in the 19th century to care for abused and neglected children, government machinery was inadequate to implement sufficient protection. Well, it seems children would have been better off with their biological families at that time. Than with what was in place at that time. You know, this cannot be how things continued. You know, surely the government had a better plan. Yeah, you see how well our government is doing. You see how well their plans are working so far. But let's find out. In 1875, in New York, the first Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, SPCC, was founded to help in Force child protection laws. All right. Looks like they finally got around to it. However, since the SPCC was composed primarily of wealthy white men, almost all of them Protestant, who hired middle class men as family investigators, 
the families that were targeted were largely poor immigrant families who were judged by middle-class moors and vague standards such as without proper parental guardianship. Wow. And that never happens today now, does it? As you go, as we will go on, you'll see that where my sarcasm comes in. You know, the numerous competing reform movements and children's aid societies of the mid to late 1800s focused on the child as a member of a family group, not as an autonomous individual, and most emphasized removing children from their own families and placing them into a different home environment. Well, sounds like CPS, hard at work. After all... I will be going over a segment in the uh, future episodes that talks about CPS and removing children using COVID-19. Now, by 1879, the New York Children's Aid Society had sent 48,000 children out of New York to live with other families. After its first 14 years, the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children investigated nearly 70,000 complaints of ill treatment of 209,000 children. Prosecutions were pursued in 24,500 of these cases, resulting in almost 24,000 convictions and a removal of 36,300 children. Whoa. What? Things got worse for children and for their biological parents. Let's see one part again. The SPCC was composed primarily of wealthy white men, almost all of them Protestant, who hired middle-class men as family investigators. The families that were targeted were largely poor immigrant families who were judged by middle-class moors and vague standards such as without proper parental guardianship. Where have we heard that before? Well, since his president has taken office, they have been stating those words or words just like that. Let's read that again. Let's see. Without proper parental guardianship. So just as today, investigators, middle class men and now women, there are middle class women targeted poor families and who were judged by middle-class moors and vague standards. Now, are you seeing a pattern here? Well, let's continue. By the beginning of the 20th century, the tide had turned away from family separation and towards family preservation. At the 1909 White House Conference on the Care of Dependent Children, it was declared that home light is the highest and finest product of civilization. It is the great molding force of mind and of character. The 20th century ushered in a dramatic shift away from private child protective services in favor of governmental control by public agencies authorized under both federal and state child protection 
statutory schemes. I am sorry, but isn't that what we're currently under now? That they decided, okay, we're not going to have it in the private sector. We're going to have it under our control. Oh, yeah, what could possibly go wrong with that idea? Oh, how about everything? How about an agency that is so powerful that they can override due process? They can override, well, you think I'm making this up? You think that, hey, there's no way that CPS could possibly, possibly take children without a court order or a warrant. Well, in February 24th of this year, DCS trial court, and this is in Indiana, mind you, DCS trial court reprimanded and reversal of parental rights termination. The article reads as follows. A father will have his parental rights restored after an Indiana Court of Appeals rule, ruling that reiterated the Department of Child Services does not have the authority to set policy and consistent with the law. Soon after his son was born in Indiana, E.H. moved to Florida to live with his parents and prepare for the child and mother to join him. When the mother eventually admitted to DCS that she was unable to care for the child due to homelessness, a child in need of services petition was filed. I read this, and it got me sick. Why? Here's someone that's due to homelessness. CPS decides, or in this case, Department of Child Services decided, hey, we're going to investigate this. This is what we're going to do. And guess what? I will read more of this in the next episode. But mark my words. What I have just read to you so far, what I have told you so far, is just scratching the surface. In the next episode, I will talk about this DCS case as well as more on the history of CPS. But we have to remember, and I will read something that uh, you might find a little shocking. Or maybe you'll agree with it. Sharar v. Cohen, a Supreme Court case. The judge stated, for a crime to exist, there must be an injured party. There can be no sanction or penalty imposed upon one because of this exercise of constitutional rights. In Designed to Kill by Crimeth. Inc.com, it says our opponents will call us traitors, as if we support another government. In fact, we have pledged our allegiance to something older and wiser than anything that any nation state has to offer. And it is the apologists for the current order who have turned their backs and lost their way. The apologists meaning our government meaning people that will apologize instead of doing what is right. I don't care who's in the White House. 
I do not care who's senator or Congress. But I will say this. We, the people, have a right to fight for our families and for our children. This is David Shore for Corruption of Child Protective Services. I hope you will tune in for the next episode. I promise you, what you will hear will make your blood boil. But it must be told.